The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode, you had mentioned it in one of the talks that you gave. It was pharma companies spent $353.94 million in a single calendar year on government lobbying. Um, That's criminal. It, it, it is. It truly is. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. How's it going? And welcome back to the Insulone podcast. And I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode because it was an episode that we have wanted to record and a guest that I wanted to speak to personally for quite some time, purely based off the experience and the work and the advocacy that Emma Bella Rudd is involved in. And Emma Bella Rudd, just to give you a brief insight into the type of person that she is and the work that she has done up to this point, despite only being 22 years old, it's incredible. So Emma Bella was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of five, and she decided she would do everything in her power to advocate for the diabetes community. At 11 years old, Emma Bella began advocating to her legislators on Capitol Hill on diabetes research and policy, which sparked her passion for social change and government. To this day, Emma Bella has raised over $350,000 for diabetes research and has educated thousands of students through her advocacy work. In April of 2022, Emma Bella gave a TED Talk entitled Diabetes isn't a death sentence if you can afford it. She's recently graduated with a master's in science and health and public interest. While doing this, she also interned at the White House for the policy office of the vice president. Emma Bella has written her own legislation in the state of Florida and is currently working towards lowering insulin prices on both the federal and state levels. And that's something that I really wanted to touch on in this podcast was the reality of insulin access and insulin affordability in the US particularly, because obviously I come from Ireland and in Ireland, 
if you are type 1 diabetic, essentially everything is funded. You get everything for free because it is a lifelong condition. That's not the case globally, and it's definitely not the case in the United States. And Emma Bella gives us uh, a harsh insight into what the reality of that looks like. Emma Bella has been featured, as I said, in a TED Talk, CNBC, Le Monde, USA Today, ABC New York, Tallahassee Democrat, Patients for Affordable Drugs, ABC, Fox, Foley and Lardner, LLP, the list goes on. She is an incredible person at such a young age, and it's an episode that I really enjoyed recording, and an episode I know you will enjoy listening to, despite the fact that there are some hard-hitting facts. So enjoy. So like I said, I, I would love within this episode to kind of get a deep dive into your own experience with the condition itself, but ultimately, Absolutely. like how you got into advocacy and, and the, the importance with that. So Emma Bella, can you, can you give me a, a brief insight into your own experience, your own life with diabetes and essentially like how you, how you got into diabetes itself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the age of five, I was presenting the typical symptoms you hear of, uh, you know, the frequent urination, the loss of weight. Um, I am the oldest child of four. And so I was uh, my parents first. And so going through kindergarten, um, it seemed to be that I perhaps was going through a growth spurt. You know, I was getting taller, I was getting skinnier. Um, and we didn't suspect anything was happening at first. Um, it wasn't until I was um, on uh, the bus on the way to a school field trip where I was begging for water and one of the mothers on there that was uh, a nurse noticed that this wasn't normal. And so mentioned to my mom, gosh, like these are symptoms of type one diabetes. And so fortunately she said that we um, went and I was tested and my blood sugar of course was through the roof and we were rushed to the emergency room. And like everybody else diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, my life would never be the same. It was definitely difficult with no family history like most type 1 diabetics. Um, it was a hard adjustment, um, but honestly, you know, I am grateful that I was diagnosed at a young age. I was able to fall into my new normal quicker and um, like many type 1s say, uh, had to grow up fast. Never had those sleepovers. I think I had my first sleepover at the age of 16 or 17, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I always like to laugh about. But um I really am grateful that I had um, these incredible parents that had shown me the path of not to be ashamed for what had happened to me, but to be really proud of who I am despite living with type 1 diabetes. And so um, actually at the age of five, they brought me to my first congressional meeting, which is where I guess it all wow. started. Um, and so I met my first Congress um, congressman at the age of five. And while I don't remember that, um, I was obviously shown the ropes of, you know, what it is like to advocate for myself at a young age and so really that led me down a path of not being afraid to you know educate people on what living with type 1 diabetes is about uh, but also you know what we experience day to day and why we need um, support in congress um, whether it's the state or congress whether it's at the federal level and also whether it's also at the state level um, or even just locally um, in elementary school they weren't um, they didn't allow me to carry my glucagon and so we fought the school board actually to let them carry it, let myself carry it instead of it being in the nurse's office. And so those small exposures to, you know, advocating for myself and what 
I needed um, as someone living with type 1 diabetes really showed me that it is essential to not only live a long, healthy life, but to ensure other people can live healthy and also have those you know, safety precautions, mm. um, like in schools, like having mm. on, <laughs> being able to have on your person. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I would imagine at the age of five, you don't even know what advocacy is, but it's, it sounds as though yes. like going to these congressional meetings and, and like press conferences or, or like meetups that whatever you had seen, maybe it was a, an early seed being planted in your brain, Emma Bell, in terms of the, the life that you would lead later on. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Before we even press record, we were touching on the fact that like, unless you live with type one, it's very difficult to understand the reality of it. And that's something that we touch on a lot, even just in this podcast itself, like the mental and the emotional side of it and how it's so much more complex than it seems just on the surface with your insulin and your carb counting and your checking of blood sugars. It's obviously a lot more intricate and complex. How was it for your parents at that age, age five, and you was the eldest? Absolutely. Well, um, for gosh, maybe two years, my mom would actually come every lunch, uh, every day I had lunch, you know, um, in school, she'd actually come and, you know, inject me myself. There wasn't a nurse at my school at the time. And so that was definitely tough. I can't imagine that now. I mean, now I'm living in a completely different city um, across the country. And I mean, I can only imagine what that would be like. I think about it now. I'm like, gosh, if I had a child with type one, I would definitely do the same, but mm. it is such a sacrifice. Um, I mean, and not that you have the choice to you know, choose that. It's just what you um, are able to do. But I'm also think back and am really glad now that we have, you know, the constant glucose monitors and now you can kind of operate from afar, which is really great. But, um, but yeah, my parents definitely gosh, played such an integral part of showing me what it was like to take care of myself. And I learned from that, but also, yeah, it was definitely a big sacrifice that, you know, uh, my parents just being type one parents had to, you know, had to do for me to make sure I was healthy. And whether it was waking up in the middle of the night, I um, was infamous for being able to suck a straw, like out of a juice box <laughs> without waking up. And so if I had a low blood sugar, they just stick a straw in my mouth and I would suck it down and never knew I was low. So um, it's not like that anymore, obviously. Mm. Um, Got to wake up and do it myself, um, being 22 and being away from home. But uh, I always love to look back at that and we, we laugh. <laughs> it's funny. I was I was watching your TED talk that you did oh. only earlier today. And I think you actually mentioned that exact oh, point really? <laughs> where, where you were a child and, and your parents or your mother or, or your father, whichever one, would come in every couple of hours to check your blood sugar. And mm-hmm. if you were low, they would essentially feed you uh, like a, a juice box and you'd suck it down without even waking yeah. up, which is a skill in itself, Emma Bella, to say the it. least. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> so when when do you feel you almost kind of, let's call it taking the leap? When did you start to take the leap from your parents ultimately being your essentially your, your main caregivers to then you progressing into having confidence to look after it yourself? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think, you know, really for me, I, as a type one was, we were, I would like to say we were, you know, we, it was a lot of teamwork um, throughout just growing up. Um, I think I would say like 
elementary school to middle school is really where I saw that transition for myself. Um, in elementary school, I would go to the nurse's office. Um, once a day, I would test in the classroom. Um, but really, as when I transitioned to middle school, I took over, I would say, most of it. Um, obviously, my parents were always there and we were in that communication. Um, and they still are. There's, I know that's a big um, discussion within the type 1 community is, oh, do your parents still follow you on Dexcom? My parents still do. They are an integral part of making me feel supported. And I don't know. I know I know not everyone is that way. But really, for me, I think it's important I feel supported. Um even if I'm taking care of myself on my own. And so for me, I guess I would say middle school to high school is really when I took over. But um, as I played pretty intense sports throughout middle school and high school, they were always around as we would discuss, you know, okay, basal rates, what are we going to do for an intense game weekend? Like, how am I going to manage to have two or three soccer games in the Florida heat when it's 95 degrees? Um, And so really for us, it's always been a great experience I would say we're on a team just making sure, you know, we're all united for one goal. It's been, it's been really great. And I feel like that's been our best way. I know Mm -hmm. not everybody is like that, but I felt most supported and just, it's been great to have other perspectives, you know, before I would do something, you know, change a basal rate. What do they think? What are they going to do to, to help me out making a decision? So. Of course. How I'm, I'm thinking about Amabella, how your parents, took that transition because i know like i'm not a parent myself but even though from the perspective of my own parents like when you grow up and you you fly the nest or you do whatever it is like it's a difficult time for your parents kind of separating from that control Mm -hmm. to a certain extent do you ever talk to your parents about how that was for them going from like we we together are essentially taking care of emabella's health on a daily basis that's the Mm -hmm. reality of type one and now we're kind of allowing her to do her own thing how did they manage that that's a great question I think honestly it was a smooth transition like I will I look back and I think it was like very gradual and it was comfortable I think mostly on my parents end, it was very nerve-wracking when I left for college um I think it was the the worry that I wouldn't wake up in the night to my Mm. lows um I do have Dexcom which has been great and you know I think them being there always for me like in person if i had a low blood sugar and just being able to like go to my room and make sure i was okay was a lot different than being five to six hours away was tough and so that i know was the toughest for them and it was also nerve-wracking for me but we um we came up with a system and i started wearing my apple watch in the middle of the night and so i have sugar mate installed and so that <laughs> made everything better so now i can you know i i do wake up and it's not a it's not a concern anymore but um I know for them, that was very scary for me to be, you know, farther away. Um, Mm. But we have done well. We've had, um, Mm. we've had a good transition. So it's been now five years since I've been living outside the house and things have been good. So. Well, Emma Bella, based on all of the things that you have done and continue to do, it it seems as though it's going pretty well. (laughs) But I often think. We all have our bumps in the road. Nothing's perfect. I will say. Of course. Don't I know. Don't I know. But I often think like we now today have the luxury of tech in terms of like giving us that security blanket, giving us that assurance that like, if I do go low when I sleep, it's, it's probably going to wake me up. I always think of like even 15, 20, 30 years ago, how, how people dealt with 
the the emotional strain of it and that that worry that essentially can be like a, a daily occurrence even something as simple as going to bed that concern right. of Oh, like, are, are my blood's going to slip too low while I sleep here and not yes. wake up potentially? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh. That, that is a huge, I, I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, being very like active and being in sports all my life, that was like one of my biggest, and it still is a, you know, uh, one of the, the hardest parts of living with type one is just, you know, being a normal human and, you know, walking, like I live in Washington, DC, we walk a lot. I, you know, I, that's just our main way of transportation. That makes my blood sugar go super low. Um, which is <laughs> yeah. hilarious. Um, I feel like when I run, my blood sugar doesn't fall as much as when I walk for long periods of time. And so that concern is huge, but now the tech I'm on is, you know, I'm on the T slim and it's great because I can be on exercise mode and it adjusts it for me where gosh, like, when I wasn't on that, you know, maybe five years ago, six years ago, it was really, really tough. Like mm. just to, just to be able to live like a normal human being and being able to just exercise with no worries. Like, Oh, mm. it, that is a testament to it. We're really, really lucky to have mm. the technology we do today. Big time. And I think it's easy for us to, you know, take it for granted every now and then. Mm-hmm. And even for myself this past week, I, there was essentially a, a delay in me getting my CGM oh, and I've been yeah. on a CGM for like three years now, but was just finger pricking with insulin pens mm-hmm. prior to that. And even last week, even though it was seven days, like the difference in your management, just even mentally and emotionally, when you don't right. have that security and you don't have like the eyeballs on your blood sugar 24 hours a day, it, it's completely different. And it's a, yes. a fantastic luxury to have, but really essentially not, not that everybody has, which mm-hmm. leads us into the advocacy that you do. And I'm firstly curious, Amabella, in terms of like how you actually got into it. When did yeah, I, I asked you... Like, when did you transition from your parents taking care of your diabetes to you taking care of your own diabetes? When did you go from taking care of your own diabetes to advocating so much for other people's care and diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I was kind of always surrounded by me. Um, I wasn't necessarily leading it, but I was I was there, obviously, you know, being the storyteller, um, you know, for that. But um, really for me, I saw that big transition of like this passion, this like undevoted, just, I I love this so much. And I like, can't stop. It's like just who I am and what I love to do is, um, in, I think it was 2011, I went as a children's Congress delegate for JDRF's, um, children's Congress. And so I was representing my region and, um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to come up to DC. And I believe it was about a week long. Um, and we were surrounded by um, so many other type one, um, type one diabetics within you know the country and all over the nation within the different states. Um, and essentially, we would go um, to Capitol Hill and advocate for um, special diabetes program, which funds 150 million dollars to um, diabetes research and also to some un- some amazing other um, uh, causes within. Um, and so that was really the first step for me was you know. Uh, I was 11, I believe, in middle school at the time. And so I was taking my first politics class in middle school and really was, you know, into it. I was really good at it, but didn't realize that's what I wanted to do. Um, And so after coming back from D.C., it really was just like eye opening. I, I think I really 
saw at that point, like, gosh, like I can make an impact, you know, in this area, um, you know, diabetes that I know so much about, but also on the other hand, like I can, I can do this for so many other causes. And for me, that really began just such a love for politics and policy and um, coming to DC and ultimately I live here now. So that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but also I had this experience um, in elementary school where I saw a lot of people were not educated about diabetes and people would ask me a lot of questions. You know, obviously we're fifth graders. People aren't going to make like the most intelligible, nicest comments. But for me, it was like a light switch. Like I was like, gosh, like maybe I can start educating these people. And so I used some resources within JDRF and I started doing presentations at my school into my different grades. Um, I did them to local schools around um, my my hometown. And that was like a really amazing experience to be able to share my story and just tell people what it's like to live with type one. And so I think those experiences hand in hand really taught me that this is something I love to do and just to educate people. And also, you know, whether it's my peers in my class or if it's people who, you know, run this country, like it, it really is important to share that story. And so really that's where that, that love and that beginning of this advocacy um, journey began. Yes, started at such a young age, as we said, maybe that seed being planted when you're five years old. Emma Bella, tell me, uh, there was a story I think you were telling about an elementary teacher that told you not to make a presentation or made some comment. I can't remember exactly what it was. And you Mm -hmm. were almost taken aback by it. Elaborate a bit more on that so, so I uh, have the details. Oh my gosh, yes. So like I was mentioning earlier um, in elementary school, you know, I, I started doing those presentations and really was, yeah, I loved it. It was really exciting to share um, with people my day to day. And so as I graduated fifth grade, I transitioned to sixth grade, which is that middle school um, yeah, chapter of my life. Um, the first day of school, I was, um, I had told the principal through an email or something that I wanted to start doing this. And so the counselor actually was CC'd on that email. And on the first day of school, um, my, uh, what was it? It was always the dropping off of the diabetes packets of the juice, the uh, the packet with my name on it and my photo, just in case anything happened. There was all those resources, right? And I remember giving it to a teacher, my counselor coming in and bringing me into a different classroom and telling me, you know, hey, like, I hear you want to do this presentation, but like, I don't think it's a good idea. Like, do you really think, and do you really want people to think of you as the girl with diabetes? And I was very, very taken back because nobody had ever, nobody had ever put it so bluntly to me. Um, And it really made me think about those next steps. I mean, yes, middle school is a very tough time for um, young kids, for students. And she perhaps thought she was protecting me but honestly it really was not the way I was raised it was not the way I had portrayed my diabetes in the past and so it really took um a toll on on that but um as I reflected and learned that this isn't who I was I wasn't going to hide behind it and also Mm. didn't want her to make me feel like I had to hide behind my illnesses or hide or hide my illness um and so I ended up doing the presentations I I went around her I continued my path with the principal so um, but I mean, it happens like it, um, a very similar situation happened last week. Um, and it still does affect me sometimes I will say, and it's, it's hard when you're not expecting people to, uh, come come about what you're so passionate in that way. And it makes you stop in your tracks and you're like, wow, like, do people really think that way? 
Mm. Um, but it always takes some reflecting and remembering that, gosh, this is, I'm not going to let someone slow me down. I'm not going to let someone, um, make me feel that I have to hide this illness, you know, um, and come back stronger because of it and keep doing what you're doing and, you know, prove them wrong. I think that's like really what's important at the end of the day. Mm. I love it. I love it. (laughs) And that's, it's a very strong self-assured decision to be able to make or response to have to somebody essentially in an authoritative position at that age. And also just prior to potentially putting yourself into a vulnerable position at a new school where you could be labeled as quote unquote, the diabetic girl, Mm -hmm. you know? So for you to have the strength to have that response, it's, it's a, says a lot about your character at that young age. Thank you. you. Why why do you think you were able to make that decision or have that response? As opposed to, I would imagine Emma Bella, there would be some people in that position where the vulnerability would almost maybe be too much for them. They might kind of recoil. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's, I think we're, in some situations that's where our mind goes immediately and i know i mean it was my first day of middle school and someone told me that of course i felt super discouraged and um i think for me as i i feel as if i have a really strong supportive place and system to go to to vet my concerns or vet my feelings because you know living with type one whether you're doing advocacy you're not doing advocacy or you're really really intensely into advocacy you know whether wherever you are on the spectrum, it's like you need that supportive system for someone to just listen and hear you out and your concerns and whether they just hear you out or they give you advice. Like for me, I, that was my way of going about it was talking to my parents, talking to my friends and vetting what my you know grievances were about that experience. And then them coming back and supporting me. And you're like, you got this, like you are, mm. you know, you don't have to listen to her. You are stronger than you know, she believes you are, you're not afraid of what people may think if they aren't educated. And so um, really that for me was, yeah, just going to my support system and and having them um, be there for me. Mm. The impression that I get, Emma Bella, it's like initially your advocacy was almost advocating for diabetes as a whole, essentially like the the overhaul of the education of the condition Mm -hmm. to people who don't have it. But now over time, it seems as though it's kind of transitioned into a different type of advocacy, of course, still focusing on the diabetes side, but now focusing a lot more towards access for insulin, access for Mm -hmm. supplies and what people actually need to survive with the condition. So for anybody who doesn't know, and as I said, even before we press record, we have a lot of US listeners, we have a lot of global listeners. So some people may not be well versed in like the reality of the access and the healthcare system, the US. Can you just give us a bit of insight or or where would you even start, Amabella, with those details? Absolutely. Well, you know, us as Americans living with type 1 diabetes in the United States, we unfortunately do not have affordable access to insulin. And I would say most people do not have affordable access to insulin. Um, while a hundred years ago, you know, um, Dr. Frederick Banting sold the patent for $1. Um, now our prices, just one vial of insulin can be over $300 at the pharmacy. And this can be a, a toll to so many people, whether they're on insurance or not. Um, I will say, you know, the vials are, you know, produced for about $6 on average. Um, and 
you can now expect them to be thousands of dollars for just a month's supply um, showing up to the pharmacy. Um, and this is a burden to anybody. Like I said, both people on insurance, both people not on insurance, um, even people that are insured in the U.S., which um, you are not uh, covered um, as a U.S. citizen just by you know being a citizen, paying your taxes. We do have to contribute by purchasing insurance through being um, being employed under an employer, or you have to get insurance um, on your own, and that can be extremely expensive as well. I will say, I personally had an experience where you know uh, I had to almost pay thousands of dollars for my insulin of choice, and luckily I was able to. Um, Bar, you know, borrow vials from someone I knew just so I could get past since my pharmacy decided what insulin I, or excuse me, my health insurance decided which insulin I should be on. And so I had a, I had a switch um, in health insurance, which, you know, sometimes you can't control. And in the U.S., you don't always have the, the luxury or the choice, um, and most times don't have the choice of what insulins you can be on. And so um, not only are you struggling to afford or pay for these insulins, um, you're also not having the choice of what works best for you. And so that that hits the very baseline of, you know, what's happening in our country um, as healthcare is not affordable to anyone, I would say. Um, but uh, this goes for people living with any kind of autoimmune condition, people that live with cancer, things are not affordable and it's because of the lack of regulation. It's because of the pharmaceutical grade. Um, and so finally we're, starting to you know hit those big hitters in the news and people are finally starting to get educated about it but very very slowly as we all know change happens very slowly and that's not fast enough for people who need this insulin every hour every day every second we're getting you know getting this insulin through our tubing or um you know so forth and so um yeah it's a it's a heavy topic um it's it's tough but you know that's why we're here that's why we're here advocating for it hmm. I know I mentioned it to you earlier, but it's just, it's crazy to hear about it. And obviously I know about it because I, I speak to Americans a lot of the time and I'm right. currently in the US, so I know a lot about it for <laughs> firsthand, of course. Right. But it's it's crazy coming from my personal experience in Ireland. And I know a lot of other countries in, in Europe too, where it's just everything is funded. And I've had this mm -hmm. conversation before where... U.S. citizens or people who have been here a long time almost find it difficult to comprehend the fact that when I'm in Ireland, I can simply just walk into a local farm, like my local pharmacy and say, I need Absolutely. X, Y, Z, and they just give it to me on prescription. Right. No question asked. Crazy. Yes. So yes. when we hear vials of insulin that we need to survive, that's the only way to put it. It's not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. They're they're manufactured for two to six dollars and sold for two hundred fifty to three hundred dollars. Absolutely. And as you and say, that, when when Frederick Banting like initially discovered it, he said, "What was the quote? Insulin isn't for me. Insulin is for the world. Yeah, belongs to the world." And you know, he was very selfless. And I mean, it. We all know. I mean, I I look up to. I have friends doing their PhDs, they do so much hard work in that research. It's, it's vital. It's so important. But um, I just, I look up to him for what he did, you know, for us, because I mean, I, I'm so grateful that we're here now, you know, I mean, a hundred years ago, it, it wouldn't have looked good for us living with type one. And so, so thankful he did that. Um, and 
I just, it's unfathomable that we are now in a situation where we're fighting, uh, fighting to survive. You know, we pay or we, 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 we die. It's just how, how this country has built its healthcare system. Um, and so many people have suffered from that. Um, and I, the one in four, it's a very common, um, one in four people can't, or one in four people ration insulin. Um, that's because they can't afford it. And that is a, that's a, that's a big number for us to think about. Um, we could have, you know, some of the type one community who are all, you know, on online and speaking. It's just gather four of us and one of us is is most likely rationing insulin. And it's it's devastating to think about. It's devastating that we have to look to people in, um, in our Facebook group chats and t- on Twitter to just get insulin. It's happened so many times to just me, myself. I know to so many other people living in the U.S. It's just we rely on each other when things get tight. Um, when we try to pay rent over groceries, over insulin, it's like, it's this balancey act that we all have to do. People have chosen to take certain career paths or jobs just because they have guaranteed health insurance. And so mm. it's a very saddening reality that we have to live with. Um, despite, you know, us living with type one diabetes and whether, you know, whether we want to see the next day, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible of the, mm. the this country and the way their healthcare um, system works is just um it's devastating for so mm. many people yeah also when you mentioned the the reality of actually living with the condition it's difficult to say the least in itself on top of then the potential financial strain it's just adding another complex layer to something absolutely. that's already complex as as it is absolutely but, Emabella, this has obviously not always been the case. Like insulin has not always been this expensive. Like why is it now as expensive as it is? And why has there been such a large percentage increase over recent decades? That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list. 